Foreign Relations uh, Committee meeting will come to order. We want to thank everyone for being here. <clears throat> a decade after the United States helped regional leaders coax the warring sides of Sudan and now South Sudan to end a decades-long war that displaced and killed millions, the very same type of violence has returned to the region under this new and independent leadership. <clears throat> Today's hearing will examine the prospect for stabilizing the deadly man-made crisis that has again destroyed the lives and hopes of millions of innocent people in South Sudan. The peace agreement signed in August offers a vehicle by which the parties responsible for this catastrophe might change the trajectory of their country. Our witnesses will provide the status of U.S. efforts to reverse this post-independence descent into violence. I hope they'll also explain how we ended up right in such a complex crisis after the U.S. and international community invested so much in a seeming resolution to civil war. Why has the leadership of the current president and the former <coughs> vice president cho chosen to mimic the malign cartoon policies of ethnic hatred and targeting of civilians to tear apart their newly independent country? With 1.6 million people displaced internally and an additional 750,000 having fled the country, how do these purported leaders justify their involvement in fomenting such bloodshed and the resulting humanitarian crisis? There are an unprecedented four level three humanitarian emergencies occurring right now in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and South, South Sudan that are testing the world's capacity to muster an effective response despite the direct interference on the ground. This hearing is an opportunity to further expose the atrocities emerging from the region and appeal to better governance for the sake of 12 million citizens of South Sudan and its neighbors. In addition to a significant grassroots advocacy by constituents here at home and diplomatic engagement involving numerous secretaries of state and the president, we have also dedicated billions of dollars in establishment of an independent South Sudan that is free to achieve its potential in a nation blessed with resources. Nonetheless, after such considerable investment, the United States continues to commit to peace, contributing over $1.3 billion in humanitarian aid in the last two years alone. I hope we are learning from our experience over the years here and elsewhere to engage more effectively and otherwise identify and address the key obst obstacles to sustainable peace that have eluded us this time. I look forward to hearing what might be done to end the disturbing violence and restore stable, responsible governance in this sad and repetitive case and what mechanisms might be employed to improve the international influence towards better outcomes in the future. I also wish to, note the, wish to note the presence of officials from the Embassy of South Sudan. We thank you for being here who I hope will convey our observations and great disappointment in the leadership to date, as well as the importance of humanitarian access and sustained peace. Uh, at this time, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member. Well, first, let me thank uh, Senator Corker for convening the, this hearing on South Sudan. South Sudan's pretty far from here. Most Americans probably don't, couldn't find it on a map quickly if at all, and the brutalities that are taking place there is of great interest to the world community, and it's important that we put a spotlight on it. So, Mr. Chairman, I really do appreciate 
this hearing. As you pointed out, in 2011, there was great hope. The newest nation in, in the world, uh, finding its independence, voting for independence, committed to developing the type of institutions where all people of their country would be protected. But I must tell you today, I've never been more concerned whether this country will survive. Uh, the circumstances there are extremely disappointing. And as you point out, the August peace agreements and hostilities continue. And people are being brutalized. Young boys and girls, rape camps, the worst atrocities of, of modern times. And we've all said after Darfur, never again. And it is happening again. You pointed out that the United States has invested billions of dollars here. And we have. Uh, we are concerned about stability in that part of the world. And we are prepared to be generous and invest resources for it to work. But we're going to have to ask hard questions. And that is, looking at the returns, are these investments the best use of U.S. resources? We're going to have to ask hard questions because this brutality just cannot continue. There have been uh, very difficult uh, circumstances for people to try to do their work. In June, the United Nations Deputy Special Representative on Humanitarian Coordination, Toby Lancer, was expelled. Violence against aid workers is rising, and a troublesome draft bill governing the operation of non-governmental organizations hangs over the head of humanitarian workers. How do we do work there? While it's tempting to focus on the immediate call to support implementation of the peace agreement, we must also look at the long-term viability of South Sudan and how we engage with a government that engages in the types of abuses that have occurred. So I have many questions today, starting with whether this peace agreement is viable. Does not look like either party is really serious about it. What do we plan to do if the parties' ceasefire violations and implementation delays continue? Are regional actors willing to maintain pressure on the parties to the conflict and monitor, and monitor adherence to the agreement? And under what conditions should we and the international community be willing to support the government's recovery efforts considering the parties' questionable commitment to the peace process, the level of official corruption, and what appears to be complete disinterest by those in power? to commit to development agenda that puts people of South Sudan first. I want to be clear. I stand in support of the people of South Sudan. Their courage and resilience in the face of the abuse heaped upon them by the very people who are supposed to ensure their safety, security, and well-being is truly astonishing. I fully support life assistance programs that touch at the grassroots. However, I remain skeptical about unconditional reconstruction packages. I am working on a proposal to condition some of the aid on a clear demonstration from South Sudan's government that it will respect the terms of the peace agreement, ensure accountability of the egregious crimes committed in this conflict, and that it will address corruption and invest in its own people. And I welcome my colleagues in joining me in this effort. We must focus our attention on helping the innocents in South Sudan recover from the nightmare to which they have been subjected to. And I look forward to hearing from our witnesses as to how we can achieve that objective. Thank you. Thank you for those heartfelt comments. Um, 
Now we will turn to our witnesses. On the first panel, we'll hear from two administration witnesses representing the State Department and USAID. Our second panel consists of three informed experts on the situation in South Sudan. Our first witness is Ambassador Donald Booth, United States Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan since 2013. Thank you for being here. Our second witness is Bob Levitt, the Deputy Assistant Administrator for USAID, the Bureau of the Democracy at USAID Conflict and Humanitarian Assistance. We want to thank you both for being here. Uh, I know you all testified before. If you could summarize in about five minutes uh, without objection, we'll make your written testimony a part of the record, and then we obviously want to, to ask questions. But if you'd begin, uh, uh, Mr. Booth, we'd appreciate it. Well, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak for you today. Uh, the people of South Sudan have no greater friend than the United States. We stood with them, as you've noted, during their long struggle for self-determination. We helped broker the comprehensive peace agreement and invested considerable resources in the run-up to and following their independence. But sadly, two years after independence, South Sudan's leaders decided to squander their country's future and far too many lives in a, in a political power struggle. Today, thanks in part to U.S. leadership and engagement, South Sudan does have a chance for a fresh start. It has the opportunity to close the door on conflict and reclaim the promise we saw at its birth. I want to emphasize up front that the peace agreement signed in August, despite all the challenges of implementation since then, offers the best chance to put South Sudan back on the path to peace and development. But the two-year conflict created a devastating legacy. 2.4 million people facing severe life-threatening hunger, 2.3 million South Sudanese displaced and an economy in ruins. Violence persists in many parts of the country and there are continued reports of heinous abuses of civilians. Since the signing of the peace agreement, discussions over security arrangements for Juba and the opposition's return to the capital have become as complex and drawn out as the peace negotiations themselves. We've heard negative rhetoric from the government directed at the United Nations and at countries like the United States that are working to support the people of South Sudan. And far too regularly, we have heard from both government and opposition that we, the United States and other donor countries, are the ones who must foot the bill for peace or else watch South Sudan return to war. In response, our message has been clear and consistent. The United States has and will continue to support peace in South Sudan, but our funding for implementation will be commensurate with the seriousness of the commitment of both parties to realizing peace. And I want to emphasize that the agreement would not have come about without the intensive diplomatic efforts of the United States. From helping convince the two parties to attend the peace negotiations mediated by EGAD, to securing an expansion and change of mandate for the UN mission in South Sudan, um, we were instrumental in those, those efforts. When the parties signed a cessation of hostilities agreement in January 2014, we took the lead in creating the monitoring and verification mechanism. And when they kept fighting, the United States was in the lead of sanctioning those who were leading the fighting, initially bilaterally and then via the United Nations. In May 2014, Secretary Kerry traveled to the region and helped convince President Kiir and opposition leader Mashar to accept that a transitional government of national unity would be the way out of the conflict. 
I spent much of 2014 and 2015 in the region supporting the EGAD mediators and pressing the parties to compromise for peace and for the sake of the people of South Sudan. In July of this year, President Obama met with regional leaders in Addis and helped forge the unity of purpose that was needed to convince the parties to sign the compromise peace agreement in August. In October, Secretary Kerry met with the signatories together to reinforce our expectation that they adhere to the agreement for the good of their people. And since the peace agreement was signed, implementation, unfortunately, has been slow and key deadlines have slipped. The central obstacle to implementation has been that the parties continue to see themselves as adversaries rather than as partners in a future transitional government. But there has been progress. In early November, the government and opposition came to terms on security arrangements for Juba. And the opposition advance team is scheduled to travel to Juba in the next few days. Ambassador Fee and our embassy in Juba have played an important role in countering the misleading narratives of those who oppose the agreement and in building support for its implementation. The Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Commission, or JMEC, the body that will oversee implementation of the agreement, has begun its work under the chairmanship of Festus Mohai, the former president of Botswana. He is a serious and capable leader. And the parties have jointly committed again to write, committed in writing, to form the transitional government of national unity in January. South Sudan has a roadmap back to peace and stability because the peace agreement is as much about reform and healing as it is about power sharing to end hostilities. Specifically, the peace agreement requires the transitional government to reform the security sector that dominated the state, to inject transparency into the public finances, to pursue reconciliation and accountability, to draft and obtain popular approval of a permanent constitution, and to hold elections. True to our values, we intend to support transitional justice and the development of a robust civil society. We've already committed $5 million to that purpose. We also intend to continue to support South Sudanese people, especially the most vulnerable. And you've noted the $1.3 billion of humanitarian assistance we've already provided. In cooperation with other donors, we need to be prepared to support additional activities as implementation of the peace agreement proceeds, including priority areas such as security sector reform and reconstruction. However, we will insist the transitional government invest its own resources in these areas, as well as provide ongoing transparent accounting of its public finances. Our goal is to get South Sudan's leaders to seize this opportunity for peace and to stand up the transitional government. Finally, South Sudan must close this chapter of conflict in order to pursue not only its own rebirth, but to better improve relations with Sudan through resolution of the issues along their shared border, including that of the final status of Abye. The internal strife in both countries has impeded resolution of these bilateral issues. We remain engaged with the African Union's high-level implementation panel and support its efforts to resolve the outstanding post-independence issues between Sudan and South Sudan, as well as the continuing conflicts inside Sudan in Darfur and the two areas. Getting South Sudan's parties to implement the peace agreement and bringing lasting peace to South Sudan will require continued intensive diplomatic effort. We are not naive. There are several ways this path can fail, and we would have to respond quickly in a manner consistent with any new reality. 
But as I said earlier, the signed peace agreement for all the challenges of implementation currently offers the best chance for peace in South Sudan. I thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee for the opportunity to appear before you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Levitt. Uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to discuss the situation in South Sudan today, and thank you very much for your support. Today, I would like to provide an update on the humanitarian situation, share how we are making a difference, and highlight how our programs assist the people of South Sudan. As Special Envoy Booth has just highlighted, the peace agreement signed in August is the best chance for a return to peace and development. Its implementation is urgently needed. The conflict in South Sudan has created a dire situation. Warring parties have brutalized civilians, perpetuating a cycle of violence and revenge. Women and children have been raped, killed, and burned alive. Over 2.3 million South Sudanese have fled their homes and lost everything. Today, South Sudan is one of the most food insecure countries in the world. Up to 2.4 million people in South Sudan, 20% of the population face life-threatening hunger. This month, the numbers will only increase in early 2016. People have resorted to eating water lilies and grass to survive. Our partners face challenges reaching these people in need, especially in the hardest hit areas of greater Upper Nile region. Despite these challenges though, we are doing everything possible with our diplomatic colleagues to save lives. The United States is the largest donor to the people of South Sudan, providing $1.3 billion in humanitarian assistance. Our staff and partners have helped avert famine for two consecutive years. In October, I saw firsthand how we are making a difference on the ground. Several colleagues and I flew by helicopter from government-controlled Malakal to opposition-controlled Washaluk, a remote area in greater Upper, Upper Nile region. Hundreds of South Sudanese greeted us as we landed. Several months before then, these very people were nearly inaccessible due to conflict. It was humbling to meet such incredibly resilient people. It was also at the same time inspiring to see our staff, our partners, to do whatever it takes to reach such people in need. But it was also disappointing that we must continue to rely on such complex air operations to get that job done. And it was there that we saw three large air operations at that time. Everyday aid workers, 90% of whom are South Sudanese, are saving lives. They endure daily obstacles to reach people. Warring parties have assaulted and killed aid workers and interfered with the delivery of humanitarian assistance for the people. USAID staff and our partners are relentless, constantly innovating to reach people as safely and efficiently as possible. They deploy teams with lightweight packs 
um, to, um, to deliver assistance. They use canoes, they use tractors to navigate tributaries uh, and swamps. They find new routes to get to people in need. Thanks to their efforts, we reach 1.28 million people with our assistance. And that is the story behind the $1.3 billion figure. We provide them with food, water, healthcare, and trauma support. We have also shifted our long-term assistance to more directly meet the needs of the people of South Sudan. As of over 400,000 children have lost access to school during this crisis, we have moved our education program to provide emergency education, standing up 629 emergency learning spaces in the country, enrolling 130,000 children who are in them, including children demobilized from armed conflict. Providing an opportunity for education demonstrates our commitment as the American people to the people of South Sudan and to its next generation. We have helped protect civilians, especially women and children. We empower women to inform decisions so that they can access water, hygiene, and other needs safely. We have helped bolster civil society and expand access to independent radio in eight states of the country to better inform South Sudanese about the status of the peace agreement and its implementation. In achieving these results, we have worked closely with donor, NGO, and UN partners, including the UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan that continues to save lives daily. We appreciate the support of our diplomatic colleagues, both here in Washington and in Juba. We also appreciate our committed USAID staff, both in Washington and in the field. For decades, successive administrations, the US Congress and the American people have stood by the people of South Sudan. We remain committed to working with the people of South Sudan through this difficult situation, but critical time, but this is a critical time as they move along the path to peace. For our assistance to be most effective, all parties must allow unfettered access to aid workers to reach those in need, wherever they may be. However, no amount of assistance will end the suffering only peace will. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you both for your testimony, and uh, it's disheartening uh, <laughs> at a minimum. Um, so, Mr. Levitt, uh, you talked about all the challenges that we have in delivering aid, and, and certainly appreciate that some of the examples that you gave, but uh, from what we understand, the United States, the United Nations and humanitarian partner organizations have been specifically targeted by government and proxy forces, including the apparent targeting of senior officials and humanitarians delivering to millions displaced by atrocities. So how do we push back uh, against such impunity towards humanitarian, this humanitarian imperative? How do we do that? I mean, these, I mean, this is, I would assume that these, uh, in some ways, the aid that we're providing is actually helping uh, these government officials, is it not? Uh, thank you very much for the question. We very much share your concern. Uh, we are, of course, very much concerned about the safety of aid workers. Uh, in just and, and it is just specifically, are government officials targeting them? 
Um, the rhetoric has not been positive in South Sudan. There has not been a positive rhetoric that accepts that aid workers are there to help. There hasn't been the message that well over 90% of all aid workers are South Sudanese, many of whom are putting themselves at risk to help the people yeah. of let South me, Sudan. Let me just, let me be, so, so the, are government officials and or proxies targeting people delivering humanitarian aid? Um, we are, um, the aid workers have been affected by both parties, yes sir, yes. government and opposition forces. So we have people here from the embassy of South Sudan, I would just say you ought to be embarrassed. I don't know how you can come to a hearing like this representing the government of South Sudan knowing that we have expended 1.3 billion dollars on behalf of the people that you represent and you're targeting aid workers. I would be embarrassed to be in a hearing like this. I'd be embarrassed to send out the kind of press release that you sent out prior to this hearing. I don't know what kind of government you represent. Let me ask you this, Are we, does the aid that we provide help in many ways stabilize the government that is there? Our assistance goes to the people of South Sudan. Since this conflict began, our humanitarian assistance goes directly in tandem with our partners, the UN and non-governmental organizations, goes directly in support of the people of South Sudan. Our long-term assistance, which at one point was working in support of the government ministries as they were established in 2011, we have since changed that assistance since 2013 and early 2014, changed it to support programs that go directly to the people. So it's just as an example, we used to provide support through advisors in the Ministry of Education to help build up that ministry. But as a result of the outbreak of conflict, we have shifted that assistance to emergency learning centers in tandem with our partner UNICEF. So that assistance with the UN goes directly to the people and not with and in support of the ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Booth, thank you for your efforts relative to the peace agreement. And um, look, I, we all know how difficult um, the situation is there. I would just ask both of you that since uh, this agreement has been reached in August, has there been any greater access uh, relative to humanitarian assistance or is it pretty much the same? Well, Mr. Chairman, let me, let me give you one example of the efforts that uh, our embassy uh, in Juba has, uh, has made that has resulted in an increase uh, our ambassador engaged directly with the, uh, the governor of Unity State, uh, which has been the scene of much of the fighting that has continued since the signing of the peace agreement, uh, and was able to uh, achieve agreement uh, to allow uh, both humanitarian workers and the UN mission to send uh, some of its troops into Lear in Unity State to access populations that in the past had been denied. Uh, we have been working on the ground in South Sudan. There are many other examples of where uh, our embassy and our, our aid colleagues there have been out in the field pushing the envelope. Uh, Mr. Levitt mentioned uh, the trip that he did where they were able to cross lines 
in uh, Upper Nile State from uh, government-controlled Malakal across the Nile River into uh, the opposition-controlled areas. And this, uh, that effort resulted in greater access uh, to people who have been in, in dire need. But we're not able to reach everybody. Um, and there continues to be uh, harassment of, of aid workers, uh, of assistance delivery. This has gone by gov by government officials and or their proxies. It, it I think, is at a more retail level. Uh, it's not an official policy that has been pursued. Uh, but as Mr. Levitt said, the, uh, the negative rhetoric about the UN mission uh, has contributed to a sense that you can uh, attack these people with with impunity, and we have urged that the rhetoric be changed, uh, that the UN and those providing assistance be recognized uh, as helping the people of South Sudan, um, and we continue to uh, to push both government and opposition uh, on access and on getting to a more positive uh, rhetoric so that aid workers are in less danger. Well, let me ask you this. Have uh, government officials in any way helped escort uh, the United Nations uh, personnel and or others that are delivering through canoes and doing the other kind of things that have occurred. Has, has there been any assistance by the government itself to, uh, to ensure that this aid reaches uh, people who are in such need? The problem in general has come uh, where the government says we can't guarantee your security if you go to this location. Or the opposition says, we can't guarantee your security if you go to that location. And so this game has been played to try to discourage delivery of assistance uh, to areas that are on the other side. Um, again, we continue to push very strongly for, we're not asking for your guarantees. The UN is not asking for your guarantees. What we're asking is simply that you give us the assurance uh, that they'll be safe in the areas you control. And in general, we have gotten uh, cooperation in that regard. Uh, but there's the, the area uh, in between, and there's a lot of retail freelancing that goes on um, that makes this a very difficult problem to get on top of. Thank you both. Senator Card. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My children's generation grew up in political activism with Darfur as their battle call for international humanity. They got engaged in that campaign because of the brutalities that were taking place in Darfur. And they said never again. It's happening again. The peace agreements, I would, would confess, is the best option if it's viable. The ceasefire has not been adhered to. People are being brutalized. The target date for the coalition government has come and passed, and there is no coalition government. What is plan B in order to protect the people of South Sudan? Does the international community with U.S. leadership have a plan B? So we're not faced with a growing and long-standing endangerment of the people of South Sudan, as we saw in Darfur. Well, thank you very much, Senator, um, for that question. 
it's really at the crux of what we grapple with uh, every day, is how to move this peace agreement forward so that the fighting really does stop and this brutality does stop. Uh, and again, uh, our engagement with the parties uh, has been consistent, and as I noted, there has been progress. I think one of the key things in moving toward uh, the establishment of the transitional government will be the return of the opposition delegation to Juba, which uh, is expected literally within the next few days. Um, our ambassador just had a meeting today in Juba uh, with both government and opposition uh, to work out some of the details of this. Uh, that will be a very important event with the opposition sitting in Juba. It will be much easier for President Mohai and the Joint Monitoring Commission and the other mechanisms foreseen in the peace agreement to, uh, to operate and, and for some of these mechanisms such as the, uh, uh, the, the uh, joint uh, military uh, command center to oversee the ceasefire, that that will be up and running. Uh, so far, the opposition has not had people there to, to participate in those. I think this will be a fundamental, fundamental change. But if, if this does not move forward, and I, I think the, the critical thing is it, it's a little bit dangerous to start talking about Plan Bs because they tend to undermine what you're trying to push forward, which is implementation of this peace agreement. Uh, but clearly, one of the things that we have done is we've changed the mandate of UNMISS to focus on protection of civilians. Uh, we are now uh, in New York by the 15th of this month. We'll be renewing that mandate and are supporting the request of UNMISS for additional troops and police in order to expand this protection mission and also to enable UNMISS to be supportive of the peace agreement. And I, I want to follow up on that. So, but, but first, let me, I join the chairman and, and, and thank you for your leadership. Thank the United States for what we're doing with our international partners, the United Nations, what it's doing. It's a very tough environment. We understand that, and we appreciate the great personal sacrifices that the people on the ground in South Sudan are, are doing in order to save lives. So we, they strongly have they have our strong support. Let me make no mistake about that. But I would just give you, you know, my assessment. I think Congress will pass a Plan B. It's a matter of when, if if the peace process doesn't go forward. Now, I'm not sure what that plan B is going to be. Uh, I don't want to undermine the peace process, but we will not tolerate the status quo. We just won't. So uh, I just urge us to have a very candid discussion of the realities on the ground uh, and what actions we can take to protect the population. Yes, the United Nations has been effective. As I understand it, they have several uh, protected sites. A couple hundred thousand are, are protected. There's much larger population that's not protected. And what do we do about that population? Increasing the size of the UN mission? Fine. But there's still going to be hundreds of thousands at risk. And if the peace process doesn't move forward, what do we do to protect those hundreds of thousands? And what do we do to hold those who have committed these atrocities accountable? Well, accountability is one of the issues that we, in the process of the negotiations of the peace agreement, uh, fought very hard to keep front and center. Uh, and there is a, an agreement of the parties that not only should there be truth, healing, and reconciliation, uh, but there should also be accountability. And the parties have agreed to the establishment of a hybrid court under the African Union. And I also want to mention that uh, within a week uh, of the outbreak of the conflict, within two weeks of the outbreak of the conflict, 
The African Union uh, held a summit of its Peace and Security Council and established a commission of inquiry, uh, which was headed by former Nigerian President Obasanjo. Uh, and the report that he and his team have compiled uh, and the fact that the AU has now released that report, I think sends a very strong signal that the, their African neighbors, not just the broader international community, but Africa itself is focused on ensuring that there is accountability uh, for the atrocities that have occurred and is sending a signal to try to prevent those in the future. Secretary Kerry, as I announced a $5 million support, I believe, for the accountability initiative. Mm -hmm. And the, um, so what is the status of the establishment of the hybrid court? And do you envision that there will be a need for direct U.S. support for the hybrid court or the international community support for the hybrid court? How do you see that, in fact, mm -hmm. going after, at the highest levels, those who are responsible for the atrocities that have been committed? Well, as I, uh, if I recall the peace agreement uh, correctly, I think the hybrid court, the deadline for establishing that is toward the end of November or December of uh, 2016. We have been engaging the African Union, which is responsible for establishing that court uh, and encouraging them to, to continue to move forward. We have also uh, started our own uh, effort uh, for documentation, of collecting documentation for events that have happened so that South Sudanese can uh, can get on the record uh, what has happened. This information, information collected by the UN panel of experts, uh, by UNMIS, uh, uh, by the uh, monitoring and verification mechanism, all of these uh, will be fed into this hybrid court. And Let me make this observation. I, I had a conversation with Ambassador Power here yesterday. She was in your seat uh, for this committee on UN peacekeeping. Uh, and I had this conversation. Being held accountable for atrocities, violations of international standards, is not a matter between the two political sides of South Sudan. This is an international interest that those are responsible or held accountable. It's not left up to the parties. We prefer the country to take care of it itself. If it cannot, then the international community must respond, must respond. Do we have your uh, commitment that the United States will carry out its traditional role of making sure that there is an effective accountability institution established so that the people of South Sudan know the perpetrators will be held to justice? I can assure you, Senator, that we very much are committed uh, to seeing that there will be uh, not only reconciliation but accountability. We believe that accountability is going to be critical to ensuring uh, or at least diminishing the chances that there's a repetition of what has happened in South Sudan. Right. And we believe we, we need to give the African Union the opportunity to form this hybrid court and that we should support it. And yes, we probably will be coming uh, to, to seek funding to, to support that effort. Uh, and we will uh, continue to push them to move forward as quickly as possible. So, so don't take this personally, because I, I very much respect the work you're doing. I mean that, and your commitment to justice, and, I, and that's sincere. I just wish our diplomats would be clearer on this issue. You give too much of a diplomatic response. The answer is that the United States needs to exercise strong international leadership. 
that the perpetrators of these atrocities will be held accountable, period, the end. We'll use every means we can so that never again means never again. Thank you. Just out of curiosity, before we move to the next panel, I mean, just by virtue of acknowledging what uh, Senator Cardin just said, would it not mean that with any standard court, uh, both the, the leader and the former vice president would end up in jail very soon? I'm just curious. I mean, it sounds to me like incredible atrocities are being created and done by both of them and their proxies. Uh, wouldn't any standard court mean that both these folks that we're dealing with will end up uh, in jail very soon? I'm just curious. Well, I think that that's a decision that has to be made by a competent judicial authority. Uh, the hybrid court uh, being the one that has been uh, agreed upon for dealing with this in South Sudan. Clearly, the African Union Commission of Inquiry report uh, has pointed in the direction of uh, responsibility yeah. uh, from the, the, the highest so, levels so, of both so government by and both opposition. Of them. So we're basically negotiating with people that we assume are going to be in jail very soon. Is that correct? Well, that, that has been the, the great conundrum of this and many other conflicts, that the people that are fighting are the ones that you have to get to negotiate. Uh, but as I said in my testimony, the peace agreement is more, is about more than just power sharing to stop the fighting. It's about a, a program for reform which they have committed to undertake and which the international community uh, will be holding them responsible to. And that's why the JMEC was created as part of the, the Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Commission created under the peace agreement and is headed by a former president, a respected president in Africa, and uh, we are a member of that, uh, that committee, and we indeed will be ensuring that the reform element of the peace agreement and the accountability elements are carried out as well as just the power sharing. Yeah. Thank you. Well, listen, we thank you both for being here, and I, I, I think that especially as a result of this hearing, but. Um, because of the atrocities that are occurring, I think you're going to find both of us pursuing uh, these judicial issues that you're referring to. Um, and again, um, I don't know how representatives from South Sudan can show up at these types of meetings without being uh, totally embarrassed by the actions of the government. I know we probably don't have representatives from the opposition here, but we thank you both for your work. Uh, um, and uh, certainly are very despondent over what is occurring there at present. Thank you. We'll Mr. Levin, anything we can do in regards to more effective delivery of humanitarian assistance, please let us know. Thank you. So we'll now move to our second panel. Uh, we, again, thank you for the service of both of you, and hopefully we've helped you in some way this morning.
Thank you, Bertie. All right, we thank you for being here. Our first witness will be Ambassador Princeton Lyman, uh, who's been here before, the former U.S. Special Representative for Sudan and South Sudan and currently the Senior Advisor to the President and of U.S. Institute of Peace. We thank you very much for being here. I enjoyed seeing you recently. The second witness will be John Pendergast, Pendergast, someone we see often, founding director of the Enough Project and former National Security Staff Advisor for African Affairs. Thank you so much. And our third witness will be Adote Akwe, Managing Director for the Government Relations for Amnesty International. We thank you for your service to the world. Uh, if y'all could uh, summarize your comments in about five minutes, uh, we look forward to questions. And again, thank you all for being here. And if you just start, start maybe John in order, that would be good. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing. And I appreciate that the full testimony can be uh, uh, put in the record. Uh, we've, you've heard already about the scope of this tragedy. I won't go into more detail, uh, but the situation on the ground is in fact very grim. Uh, fighting continues, atrocities are being carried out. Some of the fighting has extended into new areas like Western Equatoria. I would like to do several things here. I would like to uh, address some of the questions you and Senator Cardin have raised specifically the validity and fragility of the president peace, the peace agreement, uh, questions of justice and accountability, and a plan B if necessary. Um, first, let me just mention we have a long history in the United States, bipartisan, of being involved, engaged in these problems in Sudan, uh, starting with President George W. Bush's selection of former Senator John Danforth as a special envoy, playing a major role in the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. And that's continued on with President Obama, appointments like uh, um, Ambassador Booth and the actions of President Obama and Secretary Kerry. We've done this over the years because this problems in Sudan and South Sudan affect the security of a very sensitive region in Africa in the Red Sea area, which is the Horn of Africa. And we are concerned about the people who have suffered under these wars. The security consideration continues today, so does the moral consideration. I can understand the despair and even the anger in having to deal with this situation when so much has been squandered, but I think we have a commitment and a need to do whatever we can to address it. Now, the African countries have traditionally been in the lead in these negotiations, and rightfully so, because they are affected most directly, and if you put any major sanctions on, like an arms embargo or a trade embargo, they have to enforce it. EGAD, the neighboring countries under the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, have been leading this peace process, but they've been divided. Sudan and Uganda are rivals for influence in this area, carrying on almost a proxy war in South Sudan. Ethiopia and Kenya have had their disagreements. People in, both, in all these countries are involved in one way or another in the arms trade or economic activities, so that although EGAD has frequently sec, uh, suggested that it would recommend an arms embargo or tougher sanctions, it has never done so. And because it doesn't do so, it's impossible for the Security Council 
to impose and hope that such things will be enforced. So African unity is important. Now, EGAD has accomplished a lot. As Ambassador Booth pointed out, a peace agreement has been painstakingly put together. But it's fragile, and it's fragile for several reasons. One, as has been noted, it relies heavily on the actions and cooperation of the two people who are leading the war, President Kier and former Vice President Riek Machar. Second, the security arrangements that are involved, that is each side brings forces into Juba to protect themselves and each other, is not a prescription for security and safety. And third, there has to be much more international involvement in making this agreement work. So let me talk to what I think are three things that need to be done by the African, by the UN, and by the United States to help make this agreement work. First, on the part of the Africans, they have pointed, as been pointed out, a very distinguished African leader, Festus Mahai, to head the Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Committee overseeing this agreement, but he should be given the powers of a high commissioner. He should have the powers to call the parties to order, to veto appointments that make no sense, make appointments of his own, take control over the budgetary and economic aspects of the, of the government, and recommend to EGAD and to Africa Union and Security Council further sanctions if the parties don't carry these things forward. Second, the hybrid court. No, not the end of 2016. The head of the hybrid court should be appointed now because working hand in glove with Festus Mahai, that's the way you put pressure on the parties to move forward under this agreement. Third, I think the, on the security arrangements, either an enhanced UNMIS or a special Africa Union force has to be added to the mix if there's gonna be security in Juba or in the other major cities to make this uh, system work. Now, on the part of the United Nations, Senator Corker, you're absolutely right to press for who is attacking UN and undermining it. I find it shocking that the government of South Sudan has for a long time uh, spoken against UNMIS, denigrated its work, and we know that the patrols going out, brave patrols going out, are being shot at by various entities. The Sanctions Committee of the UN has, has launched an investigation of who's blocking the peace process. The final report of that committee is going to the UN probably this month to be examined by the Security Council, hopefully made public, and I hope it will provide the answers that you asked for as to exactly who is doing this, who's responsible for attacks. I would add that when the UN renews UNMIS in uh, this month, it should make clear, that again, that attacks on UN peacekeepers is a war crime, and those responsible will be pursued and made accountable. I would like to see that same legal precedent for attacks on aid workers. 41 aid workers have been killed in South Sudan. That, too, requires accountability. Getting the hybrid court up is, is good and important, but the UN has a responsibility as well. Now let me turn to the United States, and the work that Ambassador Booth and, and the administration is doing is terrific, but it takes more push. 
President Obama did a very important thing when he was in Addis, I think it was in July. He called the parties together, he called the EGAD heads of state together and said, we need more urgency in this process. The US is prepared to go ahead with its own sanctions. We're prepared to take other steps. That helped inject urgency and it led, I think, in large part to the final signing of the peace agreement. But the peace agreement lags. It's fragile. It's in trouble. At the next meeting that EGAD holds with its international partners, I would like to see Vice President Joe Biden go and inject the same sense of urgency that these parties must move forward, that additional steps made to strengthen the international role and make it happen. Now finally, let me get to Senator Cardin's question about Plan B. This is a, oh no, uh, let me first talk about other things I want the US to do. I think that, and I know the US is already doing some of these, peace agreements necessarily in the end involve bringing the guys with the guns to the table. But peace agreements don't last if they rest on that alone. Now on paper, this is a very comprehensive peace agreement. It calls for a new constitution, calls for economic reform, it calls for a lot of things, but those two leaders are not committed to those actions. So you have to bring in civil society, you have to bring in women's groups, you have to bring in other professionals, and the United States can lend very strong support in this peace process to their participation and insist upon it. Now let me turn to plan B. If this fails, I think the only way then thereafter is to raise this problem to a much higher level to having a meeting at the UN of relevant heads of state, and I would see the United States playing a major role, which comes to an agreement with all the major countries involved on several steps, an arms embargo, a trade embargo on anything except food and medicine. Let's starve the fighting, not the people. Let's make sure that all the other mechanisms of accountability are set up and then appoint a strong, the Africans must commit to enforcing those bans all along their borders. And then you have a joint UN-AU mediator move forward together on a new and more comprehensive process. This is the only way, it seems to me, raising it to a much higher level, taking much tougher steps on the parties if this current agreement does not succeed. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to go over on my time. Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, Senator Kane, thank you guys for your leadership. I'm honored to be here with my two friends uh, and want to associate myself with much of what they said. This war has been hell for the people of South Sudan, but here's a twist that we don't often hear about. It has also been very lucrative for the leaders who have plunged this country back into war. War crimes pay has been the message. And therein lies the crux of the problem, I believe, with US and broader international efforts to support peace in South Sudan and other war-torn states in Africa. We're not frontally addressing the violent kleptocracies that are at the core of wars and extreme violence in South Sudan, Sudan, Congo, the Central African Republic, Somalia, Burundi, the list goes on. South Sudan and other countries that are listed above are not simply failed states they, as they are commonly referred to. They are actually hijacked states. 
In South Sudan, competing factions of the ruling party, who have been competing for decades, so it's no surprise, they've used state institutions and deadly force to finance and fortify networks that are aimed primarily at self-enrichment and brutal repression of dissent. South Sudan's leaders never seriously invested in building credible state institutions, despite the hundreds of millions of dollars that you were asking about earlier that the United States invested in that state building exercise because they wanted to ensure the absence of accountability. As Sarah Chase has observed in other settings, probably in this chair, Afghanistan most prominently is where her work is best known. Corruption is not an anomaly. It is the foundation of the intended system. The missing ingredient, I believe, and this is a critical point for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the missing ingredient in US policy towards South Sudan and many of these other war-torn states that we worry about is financial and economic leverage. The surest route to building leverage for the United States to have a bigger influence on peace and human rights in these African countries is by hitting the leaders of rival kleptocratic factions where it hurts the most, in their wallets. A hard target transnational search is required for the assets that have been stolen from South Sudan, from the people of South Sudan, by their leaders over the past decade, with the aim of freezing and seizing and then returning the proceeds of corruption to the South Sudanese people, and by creating real consequences for those that have robbed the country blind and plunged it back to war. You want to get the attention of the leaders pursuing war in South Sudan? Go after their stolen assets. That, Mr. Chairman, is where I believe the Senate Foreign Relations Committee can make the biggest difference. So I'd like now to turn with my little time to five specific financial and legal mechanisms that the U.S. can pursue now to counter these violent kleptocracies fueling and profiting from wars like that in South Sudan. These authorities have been strengthened in the aftermath of 9-11 globally, but they're rarely used for human rights and peace. They're rarely used for these second-tier conflicts that most people give lip service to and then, and then, and then uh, focus the tools on primary uh, objectives like Russia, rightly, in Ukraine and North Korea and, and Iraq. In order, first, the first recommendation I make is in order for targeted sanctions, which is our basic tool, to actually have an impact, they have to be much more robustly imposed and much more systematically enforced than what is occurring presently for South Sudan and any of the other conflicts that I've listed. We should be sanctioning a much wider group of perpetrators and their enablers in the international systems, banks and other uh, entities, and enforcing those sanctions whenever, wherever we can. And we do that by building and leading, and you guys have primarily focused on this point of leadership, leading a broad alliance of countries to join us in these kinds of efforts. Because we know, and you talked to uh, Ambassador Power yesterday, you know that the Security Council faces an incredible logjam because of Russian and Angolan and other countries' intransigence in the use of tools of financial leverage. So we need to lead it. We need to build, get the countries where all these assets are parked and, and help them uh, and, and work with them to go after those, this money. The second recommendation I'd put forward uh, uh, is for the full Senate in 2016 to pass the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, S-284, which has been introduced by Ranking Member Cardin and a number of other members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to bolster the U.S. government's infrastructure 
to take action against those who commit human rights abuses or are complicit in major acts of corruption. That would provide a powerful tool of leverage for the United States. The third recommendation I'd put forward is identifying and countering sanctions busters. That should be a critical component. Going up the value chain where money is really made in the international system off the hu human misery in these African conflicts. And I have a lot more in the, in the testimony and be glad to talk to you further about that. Fourth uh, recommendation I'd put forward is that sanctions are just uh, one lever uh, that can be used to apply financial pressure and build leverage. We also need to use the anti-money laundering measures uh, that the US Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, uh, has broad authority over under Section 311 of the Patriot Act. And we can require domestic financial institutions and agencies to implement specific special measures against designated primary money laundering concerns like that which is going on in South Sudan. You would be shocked at how much money these leaders are making off of money laundering today in South Sudan. We'd like to see FinCEN issue an advisory to all U.S. financial institutions regarding the risk of money laundering activity in South Sudan. My fifth and final recommendation has to do with mechanisms beyond the Treasury Department that the U.S. can bring to bear right now in South Sudan. The U.S. government can take steps to ensure that the South Sudan's leaders, ill-gotten gains, do not wind up in the United States or pass through the U.S. financial system. Remember, dollar-denominated uh, 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 money transfers uh, represent perhaps up to 60, 70 percent of the movement of money in the world. So we have a great, uh, there's a great vulnerability there for the U.S. to act. The U.S. Department of Justice's Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative is empowered to identify and seize the proceeds of overseas corruption in cases that involve a U.S. nexus that just has to be investigated, found, and then acted upon. The kleptocracy initiative, I think, should actively pursue cases involving the misappropriation of South Sudan's assets, especially given Senator Cardin's point of how much we have invested in uh, South Sudan since its independence. South Sudanese officials who loot state coffers, and that includes the rebels who used to be part of the South Sudan government and the current government, uh, uh, should, 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 should be under no illusion that they can park their ill-gotten gains in the United States or use the U.S. financialist system to execute their heists. As a closing note, we in the, in the nonprofit world are trying to do our part uh, by recently launching an initiative we're calling the Century. We've hired financial forensic investigators to follow the money and prepare substantial dossiers for action by the Treasury Department and other governments with jurisdiction over some of these stolen assets. We'll do our best in 2016 to shine a spotlight on these kleptocratic networks that are profiting, profiting from human misery in South Sudan and other countries and make them pay for their crimes. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Mr. Akwe. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee for the opportunity to present our analysis and our findings. Um, we have prepared written testimony, which I hope will be entered into the record. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, it's hard to find words to do justice to the tragedy and the depth of suffering that the people of South Sudan are going through. When one adds on the human rights abuses that have impacted these people during the civil war in Sudan, which date, dates back to 1955, with a brief respite between the 1972 and 83, the current conflagration and its primary drivers is even more appalling. In all of that time, the international community has responded, and I'd like to acknowledge 
the incredible leadership and resources that the United States has brought to the crisis, but often we have done too little too late on various aspects of the conflict. And the international community, we, have consistently failed to uphold and impose accountability on the actors linked to abuses and the officials of the new government when they assumed power after gaining independence. The people of South Sudan are reaping the grim consequences of that failure. These include war crimes of extrajudicial execution, mass killings, rape, the destruction of livelihoods, the destruction of homes, the humanitarian crisis, which has created over two million uh, displaced persons, and of course, the food insecurity that was referred to earlier in the first panel. In addition to that, one of the more disturbing trends has been Sudan's imitation of government repression and the closing of political space. Freedom of expression is heavily curtailed in South Sudan, and the situation is worsening. Authorities, especially the national security services, routinely harass and intimidate human rights defenders and journalists. The NSS arbitrarily detains journalists and orders some to leave the country. NSS officers have shut down newspapers, seized copies of papers, and prohibited the publication of articles. The weakness of the criminal justice system has resulted in rampant human rights abuses, such as pretrial detention, failure to guarantee due process and fair trials, and arbitrary arrest and detention. State security forces are only contributing to the overwhelming culture of impunity and fear through their inability to hold per perpetrators of human rights abuses accountable and the arbitrary arrest and detention of journalists and human rights defenders. Further, the capacity of the police and the judiciary to enforce the laws has been decimated due to the militarization and defection of many police officers. In addition to this, Parliament, as you know, passed a national security bill and while President Kerr refused to sign it into law, the possibility of the bill becoming law remains and continues to be a threat and an act of intimidation. This bill would give the National Security Services broad powers to arrest, to detain with appropriate oversight mechanisms against abuse, such abuses, and continues to be a major impediment towards any kind of accountability, whether it be on the issues of corruption that John has referred to, or more civil and political rights types of abuses. Until persons linked to human rights violations are brought to justice, there will be no incentive to change behavior and no progress towards improving the respect and protection of human rights. And we in the international community will be stuck in the same fire drill of trying to stop violence and in the process postpone setting up effective mechanisms of governance and accountability. It is well past time for the United States in concert with the AU, EGAD, and the United Nations to make abusive actions have consequences and break, begin to break the cycle of impunity in Sudan. The failure of leadership, which this hearing appropriately uses as its focus, that created the enabling conditions for the current crisis occurred in the country as well as outside of it. Until this is corrected, all of us share the blame of the continued suffering. We have a number of recommendations, some of which have already been noted. Um, we would continue to call for US leadership in trying to push for an, a comprehensive arms embargo. We support an imposition of asset freezes and travel bans more robustly against individuals and entities who have engaged in violations of international humanitarian law and abuses of international human rights law. And we also feel that the pressure must be made to, on, to put on the UN Security Council 
to act on the paper outlining options for accountability. For example, the, in, the hybrid court that you have referred to, the um, peace and justice and reconciliation initiatives, and most importantly, the news that uh, the United States is already beginning to collect evidence is probably one of the most important steps forward because as soon as those, that evidence is lost, it becomes incredibly difficult to Im impose and enforce accountability later down the line. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, we really are facing, as John said, um, not just a failed state but a hijacked state. And it's the tragedy that it's happened so quickly um, we must all redouble our efforts to try to change this. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Um, we appreciate the work that each of you do and the organizations that you represent. And Mr. Lyman, I, just in hearing you talk about the fact that the two leaders really are not committed uh, to this peace agreement, and then John, uh, listening to you and hearing how profitable it is for the two leaders uh, to be extorting and extracting uh, resources from their own country. And then to know now, uh, since the peace agreement has been reached, both the opposition and the country leadership itself is now here asking us for money to implement the peace agreement, which is uh, pretty unique. Um, I have to say that while we don't want to undermine the process and don't want to talk about Plan B, it, it doesn't seem to me that uh, if the leaders are not committed to it, if they're profiting from the kleptocracy that exists there, um, um, I mean, how, let me, how should we view what is occurring there? I mean, I think the independence of South Sudan occurred because of us, mainly, and yet uh, we have obviously very corrupt leadership. Uh, on both sides, how do we expect uh, this, this peace agreement to actually bear fruit? Uh, Senator, um, I, I think Ambassador Booth put it well to say that at, for the moment, we should try to make this agreement work if at all possible. When I said that neither uh, 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 President Kiir or former Vice President Mashar are committed, they are certainly not committed, in my view, to the long-term transformations and reforms that are needed. They may be led by pressures, by arms embargoes and other things to need to end the conflict. And I think doing everything we can to improve those incentives in the ways that we have all been talking about is important. And I think empowering President Mohai much more and putting real power in his hands to push the parties forward will also help. I think it would be a mistake to jettison this agreement and walk away from it when so much work has been put into it. We have to recognize where those weaknesses are and press forward. If with all of that, then it just simply doesn't work. You have to build up to what I suggested, a new and much higher level uh, approach. But on paper, this agreement makes a lot of sense. But it relies too much on trusting those two to work together. And I think much more pressure has to be brought to bear to make that even possible. A quick uh, footnote to, to what Ambassador Lyman said. I think I would make one small adjustment, and, and I'm sure it's not really a disagreement at all. It's, it's really that you can 
pursue both tracks at the same time. And I think that's what private uh, panelists can do as non-governmental actors and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee can do so effectively and you have so effectively in so many different, and that is while pressing and, and pushing and pursuing the implementation of this existing agreement, which by the way does provide an exit ramp off of a one-way road to hell that South Sudan is on. So like we've got to stop the bleeding and that this agreement allows for that possibility if fully implemented. But at the same time, this is really the only sort of small nuance from what Princeton said, at the same time, I think we should be putting in place now some of these plan, elements that you would consider plan B. Part of them would be the kinds of things that I was talking about where there are real accountability, financial accountability mechanisms, and then particularly uh, accelerating and, 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 and pressing and pushing the legal accountability uh, measures that both of my colleagues have, have talked about. So I think pushing both forward much more robustly at the most senior level we possibly can and building a uh, multinational coalition of countries who can act and not when the Security Council can't because of the divisions. So I, I very much appreciated your testimony. I know Senator Cardin did too. Um, you're in essence arguing that we begin collecting the stolen resources that both the president and the opposition have engaged in. And I, I assume you're also talking about beginning sanctions efforts. Um, and I hear Mr. Lyman talking about the fact that while they're committed, they're committed for the short term, they're not committed for the long haul. In other words, they'd like to, to buy some time, but revert to the same activities uh, that they've been involved in after the short term. Is that, is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, I, I, just, I just don't think that you could expect them to be committed to a real new constitution, clean elections and accountability that might, as you suggested, leave them both ineligible to be president at the next election. You know, if it, it sounds to me, and you never want to prejudge, but based on the evidence that uh, it would out leave them both in jail and, and without resources. So again, I, I don't know, I, I hear everybody talking about this agreement is the best agreement on paper. Uh, we're dealing with people. Uh, it doesn't sound like to me that this, the you know people usually act in their own self-interest. Uh, that by pursuing the route you're talking about, which uh, sounds uh, interesting to me, John, uh, and but hearing the backdrop that Princeton is laying out here, it doesn't sound to me like um, that. Uh, going in that direction is going to lead to a place. It sounds to me like some of what we heard yesterday, Senator Cardin, where unless you're going to somehow or another absolve these two leaders of their wrongdoings and let them continue to have the resources that they've stolen from their own citizens and probably from us, let's face it, um, that there's no way this peace agreement uh, is going to come to fruition. So if you would, uh, is, is that a fair statement or not? Well, I would put it this way. It's a very fragile agreement for exactly those reasons. However, uh, 
You have to remember there's more in South Sudan than these two leaders. There are others who are deeply concerned about this kind of transformation. And one of the recommendations I made is that the U.S. invest heavily in uh, enabling them to play a role. Uh, professionals who have been pushed aside, uh, uh, re judges who can come into the system, women's groups, others who can add real substance to this peace process. But second, it seems to me, and this is why I think the appointment of the head of the hybrid court should be now, is that the head of the hybrid court and President Mahai working together can hopefully put pressure enough on, these, on those who are culpable that eventually they will step aside. Now, that's gonna take a real effort on their part, and, but that's why I was distressed to hear that the timing on the hybrid court is so late. Parallel to that, and picking up on what John said about parallel actions, as I mentioned, there is a report that will go to the UN on uh, very specifically on who's blocking the peace and who's attacking peacekeepers. That gives the Security Council a role to play on accountability, et cetera. There's also information not yet public behind President Obasanjo's commission of inquiry that also names names. That part of the report has not been made public. So there is a lot of evidence that, if I can put it bluntly, can be used as pressure on the parties to eventually have those who are the real perpetrators and the obstacles to step aside for a real transformation process. Yes, sir, go ahead. Oh, thank you very much. I, I think uh, I, would, I would just turn it upside down, the, 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 the whole question, and say that it's, I, I would argue that the lack of accountability for, for war crimes and for mass corruption uh, uh, ensures continued instability in conflict. And, and, and it's, it, you have to break the cycle at some point, and it's very unpredictable what happens when you break that cycle. The threat of serious consequences, in my view, the actual imposition of serious consequences is the one thing that can change calculations of parties that for decades have destroyed their country and seen simply no cost for that. Transitions, political transitions from one leadership to the next leadership group, if they're resisting it, are, are, are inherently highly unstable, unstable and unpredictable. What I think we as the United States can do uh, is, is introduce some of these consequences and costs for the commission of these war crimes and crimes against humanity and, and uh, mass uh, theft of resources of the country, we can introduce these consequences in order to affect calculations and maybe look at a country like Liberia where you actually had an international effort which worked assiduously for a transition and had Charles Taylor simply complied with the uh, conditions of his uh, asylum, he would be today enjoying a nice life in, in Nigeria, but he didn't. But in other words, we don't know where these guys will end up. They don't all have to end up in the Hague. There are different ways to do it. But unless you start the ball rolling where they start to see they're, they're, the game is up, their number is going to be called, they're not going to change, I don't think. I think that's really, we can't manage the, uh, how it's going to happen, but we can start the process. Yeah, I don't think you'll have any debate uh, here. Uh, on that approach, I just uh, think in taking that approach, which to me is the right approach, you're very unlikely to have the, the leader of the opposition and the leader of the government working towards the peace agreement that we're talking about right now. But uh, um, so it's quite a conundrum. 
Um, I personally, I see failure, and uh, I'll now turn to our ranking member. Well, Mr. Chairman, um, we should also point out that the peace agreement envisions that these two individuals are going to be president and vice president, and I don't want to prejudge their culpability. I really don't. I, I mean that sincerely. But it, it does point out that there needs to be a plan B. And I think this panel has been very, very helpful in understanding what a plan B looks like. And I don't disagree that you can do two things at one time. You can pursue a peace agreement uh, and you can pursue the alternatives or what might have to be incorporated into uh, the moving forward of South Sudan. And I think what you have suggested, particularly on accountability, is very much part of the future of South Sudan. Uh, the embargoes uh, very much understand that. We need to work with the African Union. That's absolutely essential in order to be able to enforce that. All that's understandable. And I, we certainly want to maintain the humanitarian assistance to the people. But we also have to understand that unless you have an effective way to get that humanitarian assistance, you can't rely upon uh, government uh, networks that could divert that to, as sources to fund corruption. So you have to also be careful that you just don't do things because it sounds good. It has to effectively be able to get to the people uh, that are in need. And that's where I think we have, you're, 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 you've been extremely helpful. Obviously, corruption is a huge issue here. And uh, Mr. Pendergast, your, your comments really struck home. Uh, very much want to be able to prevent the, uh, the corrupt officials from being able to enjoy the fruits of their corruption by parking them in U.S. banks or visiting their properties in the United States. Uh, your reports, where do they try to keep their the resources? Do they keep it in South Sudan or are they trying to move it around? Well, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. They're, very rarely do you see uh, kleptocratic uh, leaders keep their money under their mattresses in their home countries. They internationalize the, 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 the profits almost immediately um, in the form of real estate and front companies and all kinds of different investments. Uh, their families live fairly well, lavish lives and this is all while their country is being immiserated. Um, so what we are doing now is, because the collection priorities right now for the United States government are understandably Russia because of Ukraine and uh, ISIS and, and uh, uh, Iran and a number of other uh, high uh, priority uh, targets, we've decided to fill the gap in US collection efforts, intelligence collection efforts, privately and build it. we're building the team, we build a team, we're expanding the team uh, to, to develop, to put together the dossiers that the government, the United States government, the British government, other governments that have jurisdiction and authority can then act on. Um, and we can't subpoena records, but we can take the information trail right up to the bank account itself uh, or, or the property records and all the rest of it. So, um, we're putting all those together in the spring of 2016. We're going to launch fairly uh, uh, high profile uh, uh, publicly, but privately we've been very, working very closely with, uh, with various enforcement agencies in different governments uh, around the world. And so we hope that they're, they're with added information, because you often see these sanctions regimes will sanction a couple of mid-level commanders who are fighting in the field. They don't, they don't have their assets anywhere else. They're not even people that are 
feeding off this kleptocratic network. So we have to go up after a higher uh, order uh, of, of leader. I think that'd be very helpful. Thank you. Mr. Aqua, you have um, stated what I think all three of the, uh, of the witnesses on this panel have st stated, and that is that uh, until persons linked to human rights violations are brought to justice, there will be no incentive to change behavior and no progress towards improving the respect and protection of human rights. How do you see implementing a peace agreement under the terms that have been negotiated? How can that incorporate true accountability? I think um, what uh, Ambassador Lyman said um, is that you basically have to decrease the power and influence of the two main players that you've, you've correctly said um, don't, it, it's not in their best interest to move this forward. If you can bring in the kinds of civil society involvement to kind of diminish and to basically empower the, the South, people of South Sudan, then you begin to have an actual um, framework, not only for building enduring mechanisms of accountability, but also for ensuring um, adherence to, the, to any agreement. Absent that, you're, you're, you're left with um, two individuals who have a track record now of, of, of ignoring um, deadlines and, 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 and obligations. This is why it's the, the, the government's closure of political space is so, so, so dangerous. It's, it's not just another inconvenient development. It's actually fundamentally blocking the, uh, what is an essential plank of, of the peace agreement or any movement forward. So that kind of, that, that's, the two have to go hand in hand and the accountability mechanisms that the United States can push and, and show that these are gonna be genuine, credible uh, mechanisms that are gonna hold people to account is one thing, but empowering and protecting and reinforcing the role of, no, these, of the actors that represent the, 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 the people is probably just as important. Thank you, Mr. Lyman, your plan B, some of it we can implement ourselves by unilateral action in the United States. Some of this we can work with international organizations in order to deal with it, but a huge part of it depends upon the effectiveness of working with the African Union. What is the pro prognosis that the African Union has that will, effectiveness? I, I agree with you completely because they are right at the center of it. I think up till now, the African countries, partly because of different interests among them, and for other historical reasons, have come up with what I would call the lowest common denominator peace agreement. Uh, it's good on paper, but it rests on a lot of, of things that we've talked about. I think it's important, and this is part of the high-level diplomacy that President Obama was doing in July, and which I'm urging the Vice President and others to do now, is to, to, to work with the Africans and recognize this peace agreement is too fragile as it now works. Their interests are being undercut if this war continues. Whatever individual interests might be there, the region will suffer greatly. And to bring them to doing things which are very tough, in effect, empowering that mechanism to become, in effect, putting South Sudan into receivership. That's, the African Union doesn't like to do that to a sovereign government, but it has to move in that direction. Or, as we talked about in a plan B, agreeing to very tough sanctions. They've done this before. They did this years ago in Burundi when the surrounding countries enforced a trade ban and really brought the country around. 
They have to agree to an arms embargo that's enforceable. They have to agree to a trade ban. And I would add one other thing that is hard because of the Chinese and the Sudan government, eventually getting the oil proceeds into an escrow account. So that you really deprive the contending parties of the resources to carry on the war. And bringing the African countries to recognize that this process is too <coughs> fragile now and take these in, in, uh, additional steps, that's where the high-level diplomacy, I think, needs to be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses for your important work and the testimony. Uh, one of the reasons I love this committee is I get a chance to educate myself on areas that I don't feel an expertise in. Um, on this committee, I've spent most of my time working on the Americas and on the Middle East. I've lived in the Americas, have done a lot of travel to the Middle East, but my time in Africa has been very limited. And so I'm, I, I love coming to hearings like this so I can learn more. And I really just, my questions are going to be, Ambassador uh, Lyman, with respect to your last point, which is um, we can exercise a lot of power with respect to levers we have to try to enforce norms that we think are important. But if the norms are not the norms of the region, norms that the region thinks is important and the region isn't willing to enforce, then all the levers that we have, I think, will only have a modest impact. If, if the region enforces the norms, we're dealing with this with ISIL right now, we're dealing with this in a lot of uh, issues in the Middle East, and frankly, we've dealt with it in the Americas too. Um, you know, people telling us, boy, we really don't like what Venezuela is doing, but they're not going to stand up and condemn it. Or people telling us, hey, we really don't like what, you know, um, a, a particular government in the Middle East may be doing that's authoritarian, but we can't stand up and publicly condemn it. It would be better if the United States did. We see this everywhere, and yet what we've seen is our levers are dramatically reduced in effectiveness if the norm is not enforced by the region. You talk about the need for high-level diplomacy with the other African nations, and one of the phrases you use is just we're just discussing to help them see that this war endangers them. I mean, do we really need to help nations that are right there see that the war endangers them? They, they see it. They must see it. If we see it from thousands of miles away, they see it. But what are the obstacles either to nations or a regional group of nations or the institutions in Africa to standing up and saying, hey, this is unacceptable behavior. And, and what were the, uh, you used the Burundi example, so what would be things that we could do to hasten a recognition? Okay, you know, we took these actions with respect to Burundi, we should take them with respect to South Sudan. If it's us taking the actions, I think the effect will be, frankly, de minimis. But if it's the region promoting a norm and we're helping, you know, underline and and support a regional norm, we're going to have a lot more effect here. So you might start, Ambassador Lyman, but if others have thoughts too, I'd love to hear. Well, thank you, Senator, and you, you, you put it very well. I think to unpack a little bit the, the, the limitations in the region and as well as the strengths. As I mentioned earlier, some of those countries have different interests. Uh, at the beginning of this crisis, Uganda and Sudan saw themselves fighting for influence in South Sudan. Uganda sent troops in on behalf of President Kiir. Sudan probably sent some aid to Riek Machar. Uh, that has gradually 
being unpacked. The, the Ugandans finally have pulled their troops out, and that opens the door for lessening that. But it took a lot of diplomacy, a lot of effort by the Africans, by the Americans, etc. The second thing is people who are profiting from this. I mean, John has pointed out people profit. People do profit. They sell arms. They do uh, other things. They have economic interests, and that has held things back. Third. The region hasn't quite paid a, f a big enough price. Yes, refugees flowing in every direction, but it hasn't upset their stability or, uh, to a great extent. So on the other side, there is a great deal of frustration in the region about the South Sudan crisis and the failure of the peace processes so far. So I think the opportunity, and if if this agreement continues to be in trouble, to build a recognition that much, much stronger steps need to be taken. The fact that they finally published President Obasanjo's Commission of Inquiry report, and I commend that report, by the way. It's hard reading because of the terrible, right. terrible things that went on, but it's also a very good analysis of what the institutional weaknesses were in South Sudan. The fact they finally published that said, you know, we're not going to keep it secret. Um, that that they've selected someone as, as distinguished as President Mohai to step in and sort of being the overseer. Little movement, but I think if the things really fail, I think it's possible for all of them to get together and say, well, we're gonna to have to do more. The costs are gonna get greater for all of us because the region, you have Somalia, you have problems elsewhere in the region. The region cannot afford over a long time this cancerous struggle. And I think you can build that and I think with the right politics and diplomacy and, and the Africans will come around to saying, yeah, we agree, we got to up, uh, ratchet it up because it's not working. It's just going to take a lot of effort. Great. Other, other comments? John, please. Uh, building on what Princeton said, this is where economic strategy can support U.S. political diplomacy. So many of the ill-gotten gains, the assets are parked in neighboring countries. Many of their families are living in the neighboring countries. So for example, just one example, the US anti-money laundering uh, uh, provisions that I talked about earlier, uh, uh, if enacted, would send a powerful signal to uh, the banks in the region. Uh, uh, that would get the attention at the senior most levels of those regional governments. Second example, and, and Princeton alluded to it, the top trade partner for Uganda in the world is South Sudan. And if you start affecting that relationship, which the war has already done, which is part of their calculations as to why they want to try to clean it, uh, uh, but if you accelerate the, the impact, uh, like with some of the provisions uh, Princeton is talking about in Plan B, in his Plan B, uh, you'll get their attention very quickly, and I think they would become uh, much more robust supporters going forward of a stronger policy uh, uh, towards the, the protagonist in the, in the South Sudan War. Please, sir. Mr. Akwai. One of the narratives that we have to help build is um, these other voices. This, the, in other words, not, not the, just the big men deciding what's in the best, their, their best interest, and then assuming that their best interest equates their country's interest. And this is why political space and civil society in Sudan yeah. is, 
it's, it's linked to civil society and, and political space in the region and, and the continent. And if you don't have that as a focus and have the U.S. continue to press for that and protect that space, you're not going to be able to have that kind of um, narrative that you're talking about being accepted as important enough to, to, to trigger political change. I think that's, that's obviously a much larger and longer challenge, but it's, it's critical in this case because um, just having um, the leaders of Uganda and Sudan decide and, and basically direct or dictate and impact activities and developments and yeah. progress um, is a recipe for disaster. I really agree with you with respect to the civil society uh, component of this. If you look at you know, the Arab Spring, the, the nation that's probably done the best, though it's very fragile and they're under attack and their success invites attack because there are those who don't want them to succeed has been Tunisia, and Tunisia was notable for a very vigorous civil society, labor unions, you know, physicians, organizations, bar association, probably a little bit because of a French model. They had a big civil society that was, that was not government, that was not religious organizations, but that kind of at critical times would act to keep things from going off the rails, and so the work that we do to create that civil space is an important part of the diplomatic mission. I appreciate your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for being here, and thanks for your um, strenuous efforts here in the, in the committee and for being such a responsible member. We thank uh, all three of you for being here. You all have uh, so much wisdom and knowledge that is helpful to us, not only on this subject but others. And um, my sense is there will be uh, action taken as a result of, uh, uh, of this particular hearing. So again, thank you very much. We look forward to continuing our discussions. Um, if you would, we're going to leave the record open until Monday afternoon, and you're likely to get questions from other members. If you would respond, we would greatly appreciate it. Again, thank you for your service, um, and with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.